Hey friends, it's your pal Mike Shea from Sly Flourish with a special episode of the Lazy D&D Talk Show in which I am going to go through the remainder of the Patreon questions for September of 2022. Andy R. says, I am running Ghosts of Saltmarsh and I am loving leaning into the politics of Saltmarsh and what's going on in town. Do you have any tips for helping me keep all of the players engaged during these roleplay heavy sessions? The party's face character is taking a lot of the spotlight and I realized at the end of the last game that one of the other players didn't engage much during the session. Any tips for drawing characters out around the face. P.S. The face player built her character to thrive in these situations and I want to honor her character vision. Yeah, so you're you're talking a lot about sort of the balance of making sure that people have the spotlight, that people are doing the kinds of things that they want to do. And I think one way is like, you, you often say like, okay, well, we have the charismatic bard and you have the hit things in the face barbarian. And what does the barbarian do when the bard is having lots of conversations and getting involved in the politics? So some of it is if they have characters that are not really built around those politics, it can be tough to make sure that that character has something valuable that they can do during those scenes. And that can be, that can be tricky to do. It's in the same way, like if you're the charismatic bard, but you're down in a dungeon that hasn't been touched in 2000 years, dodge and traps, your, all of your interaction skills don't really come into play. So we are always trying to think about what are ways to bring in one pillar of the game when the other pillars are starting to dominating play. What options are there for the barbarian to do something? And some of it is like, you know, having the political bad guy constantly hiring thugs to try to keep the characters from getting to the place. And the barbarian's like, I get to crack thug heads together. You know, that's a good day. So what are the, what are the ways that you can put combat in? I remember playing like Dragon Age, the Dragon Age RPG. And I remember they would have scenes where like, there was a lot of sort of going around in the, there was a ball, there was a big fancy royal ball. And I remember like, you still got jacked by assassins in the gardens, right? There was like every, every time that, you know, you're like, oh, there's never going to be a fight. Oh, look, I'm getting attacked by assassins while I'm having a conversation in the gardens. So trying to think about what those opportunities are for the characters that aren't really tied around those scenes is a big deal. And it can be, it can be hard. It can be, it can be a struggle. Like, I don't know why the barbarian would get into a fight, but I think it helps to do so. And, and that idea of, of keeping like almost an initiative order going so that, you know, what player hasn't been engaged recently and you can, and then drawing them in, how do they get involved? And remember that like you can do an intimidation check with strength. It doesn't have to be charisma. Maybe they physically do something. Maybe their physical presence alone is enough to engage in a situation. But yeah, that can be tough, particularly if you have a very big sort of political campaign and you have, and you have players and characters who just aren't into that. And I would suggest, you know, sometimes you need to dial the politics back and get back to the good old fashioned, you know, smashing heads against walls of, of the combat focus of D&D. Andy, I hope that helps a little bit. David F. says, my group had to take a break after interacting with a cultist who grew up in the cult and is brainwashed into it. How do you run cults where the players don't feel bad about the people they will have to deal with to overturn the cult itself? This is a horror game in the Tepest domain of Ravenloft, so some moral issues are fine, but I don't want to break, the, break my group. This is a really good question. I, one of the reasons that I love cults as much as I do is because I always feel like cults are really bad guys who are bad because of what they do, not who they are. It breaks past that idea that all orcs are bad and all goblins are bad and all, you know, that it breaks past these sort of racial stereotypes that we do of like, oh, well, because they're a drow, they must be manipulative demon worshipers. And instead, we're saying, no, these people all joined a cult for a reason. They're all part of the scorpion cult. And scorpion cultists are, are bad cultists. So we, we don't, you don't feel so bad 
about bashing the heads of scorpion cultists. But even then, you might say, well, what about cultists who aren't really part of it? They're like, look, I had a Thursday free and I didn't know what to do with Thursdays and they have a good cheese platter at the scorpion cult convention. So I was like, well, I'll get the cheese platter. I don't, I don't need to poison myself with scorpion poison, but there is that like, you know, there's, there's a, in real life, there's a big question of like, how much authority do we really have over the decisions that we make given the backgrounds we have, given all the environment that's around us, given like all this stuff. Sometimes it's really hard to break away from some of this. And sometimes you look at it and you say like, you know, the choices that people made definitely are, can be, can be terrible terrible choices but it doesn't mean there wasn't a reason they got there and not a valid reason necessarily but a circumstantial reason but the other part is like we're 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 also in a john wick movie we're not in real life so it's okay to have a game where all the cultists are bad people like we don't worry about the fact that every assassin that john wick you know completely destroys had a mother who loved them and had brothers and sisters who loved them and maybe had a child waiting for them to bring Baskin Robbins on the way home after they were done killing John Wick. And like, Oh, now I feel really bad about that dude. who breaks his neck over the countertop. So, you know, there's, there's an element of fantasy to this game too. And that element of fantasy says it's okay. There aren't real people. This is an action movie. This is not a, a, a simulation of real life. And we don't, so you don't always have to worry about like, Oh, well, you know, how did that cultist become a cultist? But there is a like, you know, they, they are what they do. So if you have two different cultists and you burst into the room and one of the cultists like opens up an artery and puts their own blood over their face and then bursts into unholy fire and they're screaming and they're running at you with a serrated dagger. That's different than the guy who's like, wait a minute, I just came here for the Thursday cheese platters. Right. And they're not going to murder the Thursday cheese platter guy. They are probably going to take care of the one that is burning an unholy fire and all and, and stuff like that. So, you can still project like, well, who are the bad cultists and who are the good cultists? And and you don't have to kind of beat them over the head with the morality stick on this. That You can make it very clear. Like, no, that the guy's just here for the cheese platter. And I've done this. I literally, I think I had cheese platter guy. I did have it where some of the cultists were bad cultists and some of them were good cultists. And, you know, every so often a cultist who might not have been on the, kind of on the edge, something bad happened to him bad circumstantially, you know, but it can happen. But I think, I think one of the reasons why cults are kind of a safer villain is because they are, by and large, they are what they they do and what they do is terrible terrible things and even if they are just standing around not doing anything while somebody's getting sacrificed on an altar you don't have to feel so bad about putting an arrow in them particularly if they draw a dagger and start chasing you right then you'll go oh well they're just you know engaged with their friends and they're just, they don't know they don't know what they were they were just getting ready to sacrifice a person it's, cool. it's okay it's cool to do it so that's how i feel but again don't beat their heads about it don't i wouldn't put a lot of situations where you're like making them do bad things you know, unless it's that kind of game and unless everybody wants that kind of game and in the sessions here you clarified it but i think like making it clear like i i had i had a big battle against a bunch of cultists this past week and i rolled randomly and i told the players i'm rolling randomly for which of them are just confused and they're in a druggy haze and they don't know what they're doing and which of them are like stabbing you with a dagger and i made it very clear which ones were which and they said dagger stabby ones they're going down the other ones we'll just you know slap them and knock them down or whatever we won't worry about them and then they could question them, like hey what what happened here oh i don't know has on drugs it that came for the cheese and then they put burning mushrooms in front of my face. And next thing I knew, I was really excited about the sacrifice, but now I'm not because I got rid of the mushroom stuff. 
David, hope that helps manage the careful navigation of the morality of killing cultists. Calfunk, I love some of these names. Calfunk says, I went back and looked at your advice for tag-along NPCs. In a nutshell, don't, but I'd like your take on a different angle. In Dungeon of the Mad Mage, there are a number of situations where the PCs are encouraged to make alliances with one group or another that's fighting another group. My PCs are always wanting to use these negotiations to add some firepower and allies and competitive advantage when taking on these next big challenges. In the various situations, we've ended up with entire parties of allies coming along for a big situation. Then the big fight is too big and out of control and long and there's too much going on. My players seem to be happy with the situation so far, but for me, it ends up being a slog. I'm paraphrasing because it's a great big long one. How do I allow the PCs to have these kind of inter interactions but not have them be a slog? I think that's the gist of your gist of your question. And the answer is do it off screen. So I, I just talked about my Numenera game where they had, their party was about seven, about 5,000 people. And, you know, the there were like six characters and then 5,994 other friends of theirs who are involved. And the answer is you have them do stuff off screen. You think about it like the background of a of a Flintstone cartoon. Like there's just people, you know, there's a cloud and there's like swords and hands waving up above. And you describe it. You say like... And, you know, to the left and the right of you, the battle rages on. Maybe as each round, like the top of the round, you describe what's happening in those bigger fights. But all the bad guys and all the good guys that are on their side, that is just narration. You don't roll for them. You don't put any mechanics on them. You don't roll back and forth. You just focus on the characters and who the characters are battling in the scene. And the rest of it is background narration. And that way you can, you can have that. You could also say, like, they're going to go take care of this other group. Like, there's this huge army that's coming down the cliff. Your army is going to go take care of that army, but you have to go take out the lieutenant in the lazy dm's companion i have a whole section about running war like what are war scenarios and in that section i describe how you can basically have specific missions that the characters take that are small squad missions small missions that fit well with the idea of a small party versus other small parties and then let the big war part take place as background as, as background narration i think that always works best and and then the situation you're talking about, if you have a tag along NPC of you and your five thousand favorite friends, the five thousand favorite friends are taking care of things that five thousand friends can take care of, and it's just described in narrative. Mad Marty says, "I've been playing and running D and D and other TTRPGs since 2004, but I still struggle to come up with exploration and social encounters. When I'm left to my own devices and not running a module, I tend to only prepare combat encounters for my game. What methods do you use to come up with different kinds of encounters? This is a really good question. It's a very common thing. I think a lot of DMs." end up focusing on co building combat encounters. And I was definitely this way when I ran fourth edition d and I built, and really third edition too. I think it's only recently when I've gotten away from this. And one thing to do is kind of almost build your checklist and ask yourself, what are the things that you're putting in your game that support the other pillars? I think the, the model of the three pillars that's sort of codified into fifth edition D&D is a really strong model. You have exploration, you have role-playing, and you have combat. And you can look at these things and ask yourself, which of these things, do I have the other things in there? And if I'm in my, my scene where it's a big political discussion, where are the opportunities for combat? Where are the opportunities for exploration? If they're at a dinner party, I ran a dinner party once and it was hard to run a dinner party that's exciting. But what are the things they can discover of the location that they're in while they're at this dinner party? They're looking at art on the walls. They're studying this weird armored statue. They're finding the secret door that's in the that's in the, the study that they didn't want it shown off. You know, what are the opportunities? And then Knowles kick in the door during the dinner party. Mercenary Knowles come in to steal the art. What are ways that you can add the other pillars into scenes where it seems like it's really focused on one pillar? The same way as the other way. The, 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 to me, the big way to break away from just building combat encounters, and again, I'm going to pitch what I pitch, which is the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master talks about this stuff. Secrets and clues. 
Secrets and clues are ways to think about exploration. They're ways to make sure that there are things for the characters to discover. But the locations, when you're, when you're filling out your locations, when you're describing the interesting physical characteristics of a location, these like, if you have like a big location, you might think, or what three interesting things exist in this room? That helps with exploration because those are things the characters are going to want to go explore. What are some NPCs? If you're rolling random tables or you're filling out locations, make sure that one or two of them have an NPC in it that isn't a combatant. And even if you're in an ancient dungeon, it could be a ghost. It could be an intelligent magic item. It could be a statue that's holding a stone to flesh scroll in its hand. There are lots of different ways to bring in things to interact with, NPCs to interact with. You know, and, and as a good exercise, I've done this and I have lists on Sly Flourish. I'll probably link to them in the show notes below that you can go to and find what are some ways to add roleplay scenes to deep dungeons? What are some ways to add combat encounters to negotiation scenes? What are some ways to add exploration to everything? And always be thinking about like, what are those ways to add these other things into your game? But, but an easy one is just make sure you have somebody to talk to. There's an NPC step. Who are the NPCs? Is one of the steps of Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master. That's your place to say, oh, what are some NPCs the characters can talk to instead of punching the face? But yeah, I think the first thing is, you know, you have a problem and the problem is you're only focused on combat. And sometimes players are focused on that too. They like to watch their characters do stuff in combat, but there's really a lot more that you can do and exploration and role play is really where the story of, of, of D&D really fills out. Marty, really good question. Nathan Y says, I love looking for new monsters and third-party bestiaries to throw at my players, but as a newer DM, I have a hard time parsing whether the monster stats are appropriately deadly or well-balanced for my group's level. If it's a source like Kobold Press, I know the monsters are likely well-balanced. Not always. I know that the monsters are likely well-balanced, but I have a bunch of bestiaries from Humble Bundles over the years, and I don't have a great idea how well they were play-tested, if at all. Can you share your thought process or mental math for glancing at a monster quickly determine whether their AC, hit points, and damage output are suitable for my power player's level? Really good question. And yeah, there's a, there's a few things that you can do. The equation that I would bring up, and again, I have this in the beginning of, I think, both the Lazy DM's workbook and the Lazy DM's Companion, and there's definitely articles on Sly Flourish that talk about this as well, are some general benchmarks for what the math looks like at any given challenge rating. You can also use the Monsters by Challenge Rating table that's in the back of the Dungeon Master's Guide as a general guide to say, does this monster look right for its challenge rating? The things to generally keep in mind, I think, are so that you bring up good ones, armor class, hit points, and damage output. And I tend to look at hit points, and generally speaking, 15 hit points per challenge rating is roughly on par. It's maybe a little bit more than that. But generally speaking, if you look at a challenge rating, the baseline is 15, 15 hit points per CR. So if you're looking at CR 10, 150, is that about right? It could be 15 to 20. So sometimes it could be 20. Like a, a CR 10 monster might have 200 hit points. It might have 150 to 200 hit points. And that's roughly on roughly on par. Damage output, I do seven times CR. So whatever the, whatever the monster's challenge rating is, seven to 10 damage per CR is about right. It's usually seven at lower levels and then up to 10 at higher levels. And so then you can say my CR 10, is it doing 70 damage per round? Is, that, is the output of it roughly 70 damage per round? If it's doing significantly less than that, it's probably underpowered for its CR. If it's doing a lot more than that, it's a bit overpowered for its CR. Now, of course, the other things that monsters do can definitely have an effect. If it's invisible all the time, or if it has advantage on every hit, or if it poisons people when it hits, or if it sends them to other dimensions when it hits, those things are other things to factor in. Most of the time when I'm looking at a third-party monster, it's not the raw power that's a problem. It's the mechanics of the monster. 
it's real, especially I think I think a lot of designers, a lot of designers who are kind of new to it or they have big ideas, they over-design the monsters and you look at them and they're just way too complicated to run. This is for, for me anyway. And a lot of times I look at monsters that are too complicated to run or when you run them, they just don't run as smoothly as it looks. Either the mechanics that the monster has just doesn't play out like you hope it would. It's going to take a lot of actions away from the players. It's just going to be a drag to fight. That's more risky with third-party monsters than I think the damage output is. But sometimes you'll see monsters that hit hard. I bring up, I laughed about Cobalt Press because Cobalt Press definitely makes some monsters that hit pretty hard. They they do a philosophy, which I do with my monsters, which is when I look at the baseline damage that a monster does in the Dungeon Master's Guide, I don't discount it when I give monsters special abilities. I think sometimes they need those special abilities. So my monsters tend to be harder for their challenge rating than the typical because... I think they need some of those special abilities just to be effective at all. So I don't count them in the math. So Nathan, I hope that I hope that helps. The answer to your question, armor class could be anywhere between 10 and 20. If it's higher than 20, that's going to be pretty hard. And if it's even higher than 18, it's going to be pretty tough. But anywhere between 10 and 20 is reasonable for any monster, any CR. AC does not scale with CR. That's one important lesson. AC doesn't scale with CR. So really anywhere from, I mean, I've seen high CR monsters with AC 8, and I've seen low monsters like uh, that have AC 18, right? Like full plate. Um, so AC doesn't scale with CR and anywhere between 10 and 20, as long as it makes sense for the monster hit points, 15 to 20 per challenge rating is about the benchmark where you can expect it damage output. It's about seven damage per challenge rating. It could be divided up against multiple attacks. So you have to add all their attacks together, add the damage that they do to those attacks and say, is it about seven times CR? And that that's those, those are rough gauges that I look at when I, when I critique wizards of the coast monsters. I probably hang on to that model a little too much, but I look and say, is this is this monster doing roughly the equivalent of seven damage per CR? And sometimes they do and sometimes they don't. Higher CR monsters, 10 damage per CR is probably more appropriate. Joshua S says, it's easy to get swept up in this wonderful hobby of ours. Tell me about it, especially as DMs. There was an abundance of reading material, podcasts and YouTube videos. Any tips on finding the right balance of D&D and real life? I'm probably not the guy to ask as the dude who's like recording a video every day this week, putting out new adventures and pretty much thinking about D&D every moment that I'm not, I'm not sleeping. I'm probably not the guy to ask on how to have a, a balance of D&D, but I will offer some thoughts. So I am not a psychologist. I do not have any kind of background in this. And what you're asking is a question where you, you know, it really is best answered by a professional in this field. My understanding is if it is getting in the way of other important aspects of your life, it's probably too much. If you are you know, not talking to friends as much as you are, if you are not talking to your family, if you're not engaged with your family like you should be, if it is affecting your career in a, in a negative way, if, you are, if it's getting in the way of other things that you enjoy, if you're feeling stress about it instead of happiness about it, those are all probably signs that it might be time to dial it back in certain ways. And you can ask about which aspects you should dial back. Again, if, if you are feeling a lot of anxiety or you do feel this draw and you feel like you're withdrawing from other parts of your life, it's probably time to talk to a professional. It's probably time to seek some professional advice. There's lots of people you can talk to. There's lots of times you could just have like a, a, a one session to kind of get a baseline of things you're doing. Men mental, I mean, you know, mental illness is a strong term for it. But the idea that like... And in, in certainly in the United States, probably in other countries, mental illness is not treated nearly as well as like physical illness is. And I've heard people say like, we really should have checkups with our doctors, which is like, how are you doing? Right? How are you doing? How are you feeling? How are your days going? Are you, are you happy? Are you, are you, are you healthy? You know, are you, do you have healthy habits? Do you have healthy relationships? All these kinds of things. And, you know, I wish we had more of that. But the reality is like, if you, if you feel like it is getting in the way of 
the other important aspects of your life, which is your health, your relationships, your career, that's probably the time when it's time to step back. But again, you're talking to somebody who spends pretty much every waking hour talking about D&D. But I think I've got a handle on this. I take walks every day. I, I have a strong relationship with my wife who also loves D&D and lots of relationships with my friends because we all play a lot of D&D. I have other hobbies that aren't D&D related that I dive into. I have other things that I do that I really enjoy. I have two different careers that I'm working on simultaneously. So lots of different things where, where I feel like I still really love this game, right? I'm still really enjoying what I'm doing. And that's why I do it. So Josh, I hope that helps. But the real answer is if you feel like, if you feel like it's getting in the way of other real life stuff, it's, it's, it's probably time to talk to somebody. Talk to a friend about it. Ask them, people who know you and know what's going on. Ask them straight out. Like, how do they feel? The, whoever's closest to you, ask them. Is this really getting in the way? Good question. An important question. Eric L. says, you've recently been speaking about villains. Your suggestion is to have three villains, right? Can these three villains be within the same organization? I'm running a Lancer campaign, and I don't think the BBEG will live much longer. Lol. Poor, poor BBEG. Poor big bad evil guy is going to get killed. Man, that model, like all of the ideas that I put out, every piece of advice that I offer, every framework that I describe, the eight steps from Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, these tools serve you. You don't serve the tools. You don't have to use them any way that doesn't help you use them. There are no rules. Everything is, does it help you run a fun game? Is it a helpful model for you to run a fun game? That's the important thing. And that's the important thing to consider. Of course, you can have three villains be part of the same organization. You can have three villains that are not connected to each other at all. You could have five villains. You could have one villain, right? The, the, the model generally works with the idea that you have three big, powerful entities who are more than just the, the, the bandit that they're going to fight on the road. That it's somebody that's got a quest that's going to collide with the characters, who has a goal that collides with the characters, who has quests that they're taking that's going to move the world forward. That's kind of the model. But like every model, you get to decide what works for you. No one, no one gets to decide that. So I, I, you know, I think the three villain model works fine. I would have no problem putting them in as the same organization. It's all whether or not that helps you. Or, or, or not. Dr. Fugue, I love these names. Dr. Fugue says, I've been writing quite a few adventures recently. Oh, you have been writing quite a few adventures recently. Yes, I did. I released one today. I have never written a full adventure from others to consume. So I was wondering if there's anything you have learned about writing these adventures, which you feel has enhanced your ability to do the weekly prep for sessions of your players. I thought hard about this. I answered this question on Patreon today, but I, I thought hard about this. And the answer is not really. It, 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 it's definitely the other way around. I have definitely learned a lot about writing adventures that I've learned from running adventures and that I've learned from doing my prep. So I think I'm going to share that. I, I really don't know that there's anything about running adventures where I said, oh, wow, it's because I wrote these adventures that I really learned about this. Because they're really separate things. And I think it's important to consider that, like, I don't think we consider this, that when we're doing our prep for a game, it's nothing like writing an adventure. And when we're writing an adventure, it's nothing like prepping for a game. They're very separate activities. They're as different as playing the game or running the game. And so when you're doing your prep, you don't have to write your prep up like it's a published adventure. You don't have to write flavor text. You don't have to write a big outline. You don't have to write a lot of text that describes what the rooms look like. You only need to do enough information to cue your mind and to remind you what you had thought about that, that situation or that location when you're getting ready to run a new game. They can be rough and dirty. They should be. Your, your notes should be a mess. You could, you know, don't incomplete sentences, chicken scratches that are on three by five cards, whatever works for you. No one needs to use it but you. 
when writing adventures, however, if anybody that's getting into the adventure writing business, probably the number one piece of advice that I would offer that I've learned from running adventures and I've learned from prepping games, write, you're, you are serving the DM. You are not serving your own ego. You are not serving your own story. You are not there to get your creative work out into the wonderful world to have light shined upon it. You are a servant to the DM and they paid you money to buy your product to help them run a game. They should be the most important thing when you're writing your stuff. Who am I writing this for? How do I make sure it's useful for them? How do I make sure that they can really get something from this that's that's handy and useful and that they can't do on their own? They're going to spend their money and they're going to spend their time and their effort and their energy on your thing. It needs to serve them. You're making them a hammer. You're building them a lever. You're not building this beautiful flower that is going to sit out there and everyone's going to just bask in how glorious and how beautiful it is. You're writing instructions. Sean Merwin talks about this. This is technical writing, right? This is technical writing. I had somebody hit me up on Discord recently and asked, they said that like they're new to the adventure writing world. They, English is not their first language. They've been writing stuff and they've been taking on the style of like HP Lovecraft and, and other runs. And they've been getting criticism from people saying like, you, you're, you're writing too much. And, and, you know, they were saying, what kind of advice can you offer for me to, to kind of help me with this? And I was like, read your Strunk and White, right? Strunk and White Elements of Style and Stephen King's On Writing. Like those are two books. And A, good on somebody who's in, writing adventures in a language that isn't their primary language. I don't, I couldn't imagine writing in a language that's not my, my primary language. So good on you for writing in a second language because that's, that's, an, that's an amazing thing. I can't even speak another language. So you're, you're way ahead of me. That said, writing clear, concise stuff that's clear and descriptive and helps that's what adventure writing is it is not fiction and even in fiction stephen king when he writes books i'm reading a stephen king book right now one of the reasons i love stephen king so much is like his books are super clear like they're super transparent he doesn't use a lot of flowery language he doesn't do it like lovecraft was the only one who could have gotten away with the kind of language that lovecraft used and he got tons of criticism back then about how like you just you spent like a page and a half describing a creature that even you can't describe right like try to read some of his books and see like what is that image does that put in your mind no one knows that's why we all like, oh, I don't know. It's a shadowy thing with tentacles. Be descriptive and clear about what people see and don't use a lot of adjectives. Don't use a lot of metaphor. Don't use a lot of like fuzzy stuff. Be clear about what it is. You can still make super fantastic things and still be clear about what you're describing. So that when I, when it comes to adventure writing, the thing I've learned is like, and I don't even know that I always land it. I don't, you know, I don't know that any of my adventures land it perfectly. It's really, really hard to do. But certainly when I'm writing an adventure, I'm asking myself, what are the things that I can offer to the person who bought this product that's going to help them run their game? And I really, really work hard to try to do that. So that's more what I've learned from the other direction. Thigo L says, I've read your tip on how to schedule weekly games by having six players plus two on call players, but I don't quite grasp how it plays at the table. What happens to the characters that miss the session? Do those players on call roleplay them? Are the regular players, including the absent ones, cool with that? Or do they have their own characters? In which case, do they drop in the middle of, what, of an ongoing adventure? How do you justify the absent ones suddenly vanishing? What happens then to the character-specific plot points? This is a good question. I realize I had not answered this type of question before. It's certainly one I've answered in other avenues, but I don't think I have a, a Patreon question where I've answered it directly. So I wanted to answer this one, which is, 
I, I definitely do not worry about having characters fade out and fade back in. And it turns out I've pulled other DMs on this and most DMs also don't worry about it. That rather than trying to make your story perfectly intertwined where the character goes off on a separate mission and you have to worry about what that, just let them fade back in. This is a game and we know why that character disappears because the player's not at the table. Players will get it. We understand it. That It doesn't matter if your world is, it doesn't matter if like the consistency of the world starts to break down because characters are disappearing and reappearing. It's perfectly fine in our regular games to let characters fade in and fade out. So that's what I do. And when you say six plus two, it's not even the on-call players who have characters that fade in and out because I have six players and they're not always at the game too. They get, they're busy. They have lives. That's why I have these extra two, right? That if I have substitute players that can drop in and out, I don't know who's necessarily going to be in. Now, sometimes you can build a campaign that's built this way. I built a Dark Sun campaign where it was like a gladiator school was the primary group. And the players each played a character that was one of these gladiators and they went on missions every time. And at any given session, they would pick which gladiators are going to go on this particular mission. It was almost like a West Marches style game where whatever players came with whatever characters, that's the adventure they went on. But a lot of adventures, the story doesn't really fit that model. So it's just far easier to have characters kind of move in and out and not worry about it. My answer is the lazy approach. You, you, asked, you asked my opinion and the lazy approach is just let them fade in and out. And don't worry about it. My friends, that covers all of the questions we have from the September 2022 Patreon Q&A. I want to thank all of you for hanging out for the patrons of Sly Flares. Thank you so much again for your support. If you enjoyed this show, you can help me out by subscribing to the Sly Flares newsletter where you get a free adventure generator PDF sent directly to your inbox, plus a weekly D&D article. You can support me directly on Patreon, ask questions like this, get access to all kinds of exclusive D&D material to help you run your games, get access to a dedicated Discord channel, all different kinds of things that pa patrons get access to by becoming a patron. You can pick up my books, Return of the Lazy Dungeon Master, The Lazy Dungeon Master's Workbook, and The Lazy DM's Companion in beautiful offset printed. The best versions of these books that you can get on the Sly Flourish store. The link to the store is in the show notes below, as is the Patreon link and a lot of other useful stuff. And you can share this video with your friends, tell people that you enjoyed it, like the, like the video, subscribe to the channel, comment on it, let me know that you liked it, and give it to your friends, let everybody know how much you enjoy the work I do. Thank you all so much, have a great day, and get out there and play some D&D. &D.